Welcome once again into the Radiopedia Reading Room, a podcast unconcerned with books or poetry, tea leaves or palmistry. It is a radiology podcast. My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me, he doesn't just write radiology articles, he also writes Harry Potter knockoffs. (laughs) It's my co-host, Frank Gaylard. I'm going to regret ever letting you know about that. I can just <laughs> you let everyone know. You said it in episode five. <laughs> At some point in the future, we're going to have a bloody readful episode where Matt Morgan reads out the first chapter. <laughs> Do you want that? No. <laughs> He'd probably be your choice for person to read. That, oh, he me? would be amazing at reading. He would be good audiobooks. <laughs> you see, you say you're saying this in the podcast now, but you know, I, I'm pretty sure recently you emailed me and you're like, "Oh, I really want to get the Harry Potter book out there. Can we mention it again?" on the podcast maybe we'll do like a patreon and once we get to 100 patreons we'll release the the first chapter (laughs) more merch (laughs) well i reckon if you can dust it off and maybe maybe have a little think about it i think I think, I think the true, I think the true <laughs> reading room fans would appreciate a little something to read on the side. Well, maybe we need a Patreon channel for it. <laughs> <laughs> so today's episode, the reason why I mentioned that is because today's episode is about publishing and mm-hmm. the publishing industry, uh, hence me poking fun. So a couple of weeks ago, you delivered a lecture at ASNR 2023, so the uh, American Society of Neuroradiology meeting, which was in Chicago. Uh, we both presented, neither of us went to Chicago, but we both sent videos along. Mm-hmm. And as I listened to it, I thought it would make a great podcast episode because it was very audio friendly. It was all about medical publishing industry and how it promotes profits and you know academic CV stuffing over actual Mm -hmm. global access to information. But the lecture also reminded me of another one of your lectures from Radio Peer 2022 about the curious case of Baum's loop because it touched on a lot of the similar themes. So then I went back and listened to that uh, video and it's more fun. So I thought I'd play that one instead. It's definitely more fun. It was probably the talk that I've had the most fun preparing ever. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's definitely a lot of overlap between the two. Both are, you know, critiques of economics and ethics of medical publishing, I guess, but one of them does it in a less hit you over the head kind of way. Yeah. yeah. But before we do get to the curious case of Baum's loop, I want to play one clip from your ASNR lecture because I think it says a lot about something that most people, you know, probably haven't thought about. And so this is you talking about why publishers still love hard copy books. Most of the issues with hard copy textbooks that make them so terrible to use as an end user are not bugs but features if you look at them from the point of view of publishers. Their format makes them difficult to copy, their weight makes them difficult to carry and share, their heft makes it easier to justify their often exorbitant costs. But best of all, and and I can't stress this enough, hard copy texts have built-in obsolescence. After a few years, they are outdated, and this is wonderful if you're a publisher because it essentially kills the secondhand market, ensuring new copies have to be purchased. And don't forget that publishing these texts is big business with strong financial incentives to keep textbooks as we know them alive. And it's interesting to note that when legacy publishers have reluctantly made content available online, they use the same model that has served them so well for decades, make it expensive and make it hard to copy even at the expense of usability. Yeah, thanks for playing that, Andrew. I think that's a really, a thing I feel very strongly about. And I think it's easy for us to ignore 
the incentives that economics uh, and profits have on the world around us, whether it's medical publishing or politics or what shows get made for Netflix. You know, everyone, individuals and organizations are responding to the invisible hand of Adam Smith. Mm. Um, and so medical publishing is no exception. But once you start noticing that, you start seeing how many suboptimal ways that content is being created or delivered because of those incentives. Um, so it is a hobby horse. I can drone on at length about it. And it is one of the fundamental reasons why Radiopedia is the way it is. It has its own incentives, but they're better aligned, I think, with what people need to get out yeah. of medical information. One of the things that we do at Radiopedia is we we don't shorten words or use acronyms like they do in journal articles. Mm. And it really dates back to when they were physically printing pages and they wanted to, re to reduce the number of words and therefore the number of pages they printed. So people would have these long abbreviations and they'd shorten them down. And whereas in our uh, you know, website, the length of the article doesn't really matter. That's right. But it's interesting, they still do that. They still have a list of abbreviations at the start of journal articles for no particular reason. It's much yeah. more readable just to do it in, in its full length. Yeah. There's some exceptions to that, I suppose, like something like Caddisall, where mm. you know, otherwise you're writing out a whole sentence each time. But the vast majority of the time, all you're doing is sacrificing readability and comprehension, replacing it with these acronyms that are vague. And how often do you catch yourself having to go up to the top of the article to try and work out what the hell they're talking about because yeah. you haven't missed one yeah. of these? Yeah, PD patient the other day. I <laughs> said PD patient. I was like, it was peritoneal dialysis, but ah. could have, you know, it could have been Parkinson's disease, right? It yeah. just, you know, why why do that? Why not just write it out? The other thing is um, talking about, you know, second editions and, and having to buy the new edition of the book. The second edition of the emergency radiology course came out late last year. Uh, check that one. Check that one out. <laughs> lots has lots has changed lots about has changed. how to inter about how to see pneumothorax on a chest X-ray. Not <laughs> okay. Well, let's have a listen in now to the curious case of Balm's Loop by the great Francesco. <laughs> but um, just be aware that there are a couple of moments where what Frank is saying relates to the visual that was on the screen during the recording, but not enough to really detract from the overall story. All right, so I'll press play now, and then we'll be back for another little chat. Like in all good mysteries, before we get into the story, we have to set the scene. And the background to this case is a little bit of anatomy, but don't worry, it'll only take literally 30 seconds. And it's about the optic radiation. The cell bodies that are in the retina travel backwards in the optic nerve, through the optic chiasm, through the optic tract, and to the lateral geniculate body. And there, another set of neurons send their axons all the way back to the occipital lobes via the optic radiation. And this is divided into a number of ways, but to keep it simple, we're going to divide it just into the upper and lower bundles. And of course, these have names. Upper can also be called posterior, and lower can also be called anterior or ventral, but they also have some eponymous names. The lower bundle can be known as Achenbalt's loop, or more commonly referred to as Meyer's loop, whereas the upper bundle can also be known as Baum's loop, or can it? As part of our everyday Radiopedia work, we receive literally dozens, if not scores, of emails every week feeding back 
um, typos, corrections, in some case, their long rants in all capitals about conspiracy theories. And I have a wonderful assistant in Juliet who patiently sorts through all of these and responds to as many as she can and passes the rest on to either myself or some of the other editors. And this story begins with one such message that Juliet passed on to me. In this message, the writer claims that the term Baum's loop, which we list in our article on optic radiation, was introduced by a medical student into Wikipedia. Well, the first thing I did is went and confirmed that, in fact, on our article, we do list the term Baum's loop, and sure enough, there it was. But we didn't reference Wikipedia. We don't reference Wikipedia. We have an editorial policy where we encourage our contributors to reference primary materials, uh, preferably open access journals, but if not, then textbooks or some other reputable source. And in this case, it was referencing a textbook. And I checked the reference and sure enough, there it was. Posterior bundle, in brackets, Baum's loop. But this message struck me as unusual enough that it piqued my interest. And so I went to my old copy of Grey's Anatomy 37th edition that dates back to 1989. And curiously, in there, no such term existed. And I checked another couple of anatomy books and none of them listed Baum's loop as a name for the posterior bundle. And looking through Google and PubMed, I couldn't find any references to Baum's loop before about 2011. So the next thing I did was go to Google Ngram Viewer. What Google has done as part of its Google Books digitization is it optical character recognizes all the text so that it's searchable. But you can also search for the frequency with which any word or term appears in text dating back to the beginning of the 1900s. And doing that for various combinations of Myers loop or Baum's loop, this is what we find. Myers loop exists, starting to be mentioned in the early 1900s, which correlates with the description by Meyer in 1907. But at no stage do we see Baum's loop listed. So now it was time to go to Wikipedia, and the article on optic radiation only mentions bound loop once, not in the main text at the top, but down lower where there's a table that divides it into the upper part and inferior part. And sure enough, there in the bottom, we have also called Baum's loop. Now, one of the features that Wikipedia has, which Radiopedia also has, is a revision history that allows you to step back in time to see the different versions of each article. And going all the way back to the 18th of October, 2009, that phrase exists. But one step further to the previous effort from April, 2009, it vanishes, meaning that it was introduced on that 18th of October, 2009. And so here is the revision history from Wikipedia. And I was hoping that it would just have the name of a contributor but alas, it does not. What thing that Wikipedia allows you to do is to edit anonymously. And by anonymously, you don't have to log into the site, but the site does record your IP address. In this case, 24252021190, which on its own isn't that informative. But you can look up the location of IP addresses. And in this case, searching for this particular address shows you that this IP address came from Providence, Rhode Island, 
in the United States. Now, going back to that user on Wikipedia, the other thing that you can see is all the different edits that anyone has done. And they only had three edits, one on cystic fibrosis and the other one for the Brown Daily Herald, which turns out is the university magazine of Brown University. And where do you think Brown University happens to be located? Sure enough, in Providence, Rhode Island. So what do we know by this stage? Well, we know that this was introduced into Wikipedia in 2009. We've been told that it's by a medical student. We can guess that their surname is Baum and that they went to Brown University. Now, I guess you could call up the enrollments department of the university, but instead what I managed to track down was a copy of the Brown Daily Herald from 2003, where they were welcoming the class of undergraduates who would eventually graduate in 2007. And on this page, all the 2007 classmates are listed. And there, if you look really carefully, you can find the first name of Andrew Baum. From there, it was pretty easy. You Google Andrew Baum, MD, Brown University, and soon enough, I found this page. And when I saw that face, I knew that I was onto the right Baum because that is the face of someone who would do this sort of thing. I wrote to Andrew, who described how, back in 2009, when he was a second-year medical student, having found out that there was no eponymous name for the upper bundle, decided to see exactly how Wikipedia and medical literature would handle things by just adding his name to it. He says it was a bit of an experiment, but like things that you do in your early 20s, he forgot about it soon enough. Eponymous names are strange things, and we have many in anatomy. Some of them are named after heroes of Greek mythology, like Achilles' tendon, but most of them are just names. We assume that they're the names of the people who first described these particular structures. But in reality, all these structures have existed, well, forever. And more likely than not, the name that we associate with them happens to be the first person to publish a description about them, and preferably in English language or maybe French or German. In this delightful paper by a statistician called Stephen Stigler, uh, where he jokingly titles it Stigler's Law of Eponyms uh, and goes through scientific and particularly statistical eponyms, he comes to the conclusion that no scientific discovery is named after its original discoverer. And I suppose the analogy between eponymous names in science or particularly in something where a new thing is created isn't a great analogy for anatomy since, after all, anatomy exists before someone describes it. Perhaps a better analogy is that of geographical features. And as we all know, rivers are named after an explorer who happens to have found it for the first time or an influential politician or a local character or some other story associated with it. And so, although... Baum's Loop is perhaps unique in the details of its origin story and its recency. It's probably only one of many eponymous names that are linked 
to a name of someone who didn't actually discover it. But I still can't help but feel that there's something disquieting about this story. Because after all, a incorrect fact, a factoid, was introduced and added to Wikipedia adjacent to the name Maya, who did actually do a whole bunch of work in this area. And it doesn't feel quite right, especially as, you know, the founder of Radiopedia, the last thing I want is for people to come and start adding their names next to every structure that doesn't have an eponymous name. And so my knee-jerk reaction as an almost 50-year-old is that clearly this is Andrew's fault. And I guess, obviously, if Andrew, who was, I should add, in his early 20s, so let he who has not done something foolish at that age cast the first stone. But if Andrew had not added Baum's Loop to Wikipedia, I guess none of this would have happened. But I don't think it's as simple as that. And exclusively blaming Andrew for this, I think misses many other and arguably some more important points to this story. In some ways, a more useful if possibly overly generous analogy of this episode, is that this act was similar to something that Banksy would do. By the strict definition of things, it is vandalism. But the act helps to focus our attention on other aspects of the story. And in this case, the other aspect that I think is worth thinking about is that of where we put our trust when it comes to scholarly material. So if the blame should not be purely on Andrew's shoulders, who should it be on? Should it be Wikipedia? I mean, after all, it took 11 years for this error to be removed from their site. And we've all heard jokes about how anyone can add anything to Wikipedia, and and surely enough, this is an example of just that failing. This is such a well-known idea that not only are people discouraged from using Wikipedia as a reference, but at my kid's school, the teachers not forbid, but strongly encourage students not to even read Wikipedia at all. And the problem with this is not that you should use Wikipedia or Radiopedia for that matter as a primary source, because they're not. But the problem is that neither are textbooks and neither are the discussion sections in many journal articles. And yet there's this pervasive idea that in the hierarchy of trust, collaborative resources like Wikipedia rate way below textbooks and journal articles. Why is this the case? Well, because I think we believe that journals and textbooks are worthy of more trust because they're less likely to have mistakes like this. But I think there are a number of other factors as well for this hierarchy of trust. And one of them is that despite Wikipedia being now 21 years old and Radiopedia for that matter being 17 or so years old, we're still very much the new kids on the block and have a very new approach to creating this content. Compared to medical textbooks, some of which have been around for hundreds of years in various editions. The other thing, which sounds a little bit perhaps conspiracy theory-like, but nonetheless is definitely a factor, is that there are enormous incentives to maintain this belief. 
Medical publishing is an enormous industry. It has some of the highest profit margins of any business. And it's very much in their interest to protect the monopoly on truth and reliability. And the same can be said from the other side in that universities and academic departments are filled with senior academics and clinicians who have contributed to journals or contributed chapters to textbooks or are on the board of editors of these or that their CVs is entirely made up of these traditional medias. And so from that point of view, there's an incentive to perpetuate this idea of quality in these traditional mediums. So pointing out errors in Wikipedia is fine. We should do that. But it's also a little bit disingenuous because it presupposes that traditional texts and journal articles are immune from these kind of errors. And this is just not true. Over the years through Radiopedia, particularly now that we've been around for almost two decades, we've had numerous episodes where we found that the text on our article was suspiciously similar to the text in a journal article. And the first assumption that you have is that someone contributed text that they copied from the journal article to Radiopedia. But in many instances, it's actually the other way around. But perhaps most damning of all is that let's not forget where we at Radiopedia got the term bounds loop from. We didn't copy it from Wikipedia. We got it from a textbook. And not just any textbook. We got it from Gray's Surgical Anatomy, which lists it unreferenced as an eponymous name for it. And it's not the only textbook. There are many other textbooks out there and dozens of journal articles now that have this term in there. And these are some serious names in medical publishing. These are exactly the kind of names and kind of publications that would be held up as a gold standard. But... If these textbooks are merely copying from Wikipedia, I think a genuine question to ask is what exactly are they these days contributing? Other than, of course, selling you a glossy, expensive textbook that, let's face it, only the wealthiest countries can afford. While preparing for this talk, I genuinely had to check to see if Encyclopedia Britannica still existed. Because... I think one of the questions that has to be raised is, can a collaborative resource like Wikipedia really hope to compare or even replace a traditional textbook that has been created and edited and reviewed by professionals, experts in the field, with a publication history in the case of Encyclopedia Britannica that dates back to 1768? And so just pointing out this one error in one textbook would be disingenuous on my part as well if I was claiming that this was evidence uh, that the entire system is broken. In 2005, a mere four years after Wikipedia had launched, Nature ran a comparison study comparing scientific topics taken from Wikipedia and the same topics on Encyclopedia Britannica, which by this stage had been around as an institution for almost 250 years. And they looked for how many errors were present in these topics. And, well, I guess it's no big surprise that there were more errors in Wikipedia. But the important thing to note 
is that the error rate was not outlandishly different. And if you needed any more confirmation of the incentives behind maintaining the idea that traditional media is more accurate than these newer collaborative resources, following the publication of this report, Encyclopedia Britannica published a 20-page rebuttal and asked for this paper to be retracted by nature. Uh, It wasn't. The reason I bring this up is not in an effort to try and convince you that Wikipedia is better than Encyclopedia Britannica. It is true that open access platforms like Wikipedia or Radiopedia are vulnerable to mistakes that come from laziness or poor scholarship, but so are textbooks and journal articles. Open access resources have additional weaknesses, like that they make it easy for people to edit them. That is why Andrew was able to introduce Baum's Loop as an eponymous name. But this is also a strength because Wikipedia and Radiopedia are now corrected, whereas the thousands of hard copies of Grey's Anatomy that will be around on people's shelves for decades to come and serving as the source of additional mentions of the term, they're not going anywhere. So the real point that I've been slowly building towards is that I think we need to try and change our attitude towards collaborative resources and to think about how it is that we consume but also contribute to them. We tend to dichotomize our relationship to knowledge in particular areas anyway, where we categorize ourselves as either experts in the field or not, and therefore as authors or readers. And this division in this day and age, I think, is anachronistic. Even a non-expert can make a meaningful contribution to these kind of non-primary collaborative resources. What you have to be is careful in the true sense of that word, full of care. Care to research the topic correctly. Care to judge the material based on its source and not which publisher has made it available. And for this to work, we need more people to be willing to contribute to resources like Wikipedia. And this doesn't mean becoming a passionate hobbyist. It doesn't mean spending hours every week. But it just means having a willingness to correct small mistakes or add content when appropriate. But for this to occur, I think the rest of us need to change the incentives around such contributions. And for example, I think we need to value these contributions at least as much as some pointless case report published in some obscure pay-to-publish online journal. And when we read a CV, we need to recognise these contributions as important. And when we're talking to junior staff or trainees who come asking advice to what they can do to improve their CV, we shouldn't just talk about traditional media. And even for ourselves, when we choose how to spend our time we should consider contributing to these resources. Because I genuinely believe that resources like Wikipedia and for radiology, Radiopedia, these resources are important. They're important not just because they're convenient, but 
because they offer a far more equitable access to this knowledge, which in this day and age is more important than ever. But where does this leave us in regards to Baum Loop? Well, in 2020, we edited out Baum's Loop from Wikipedia and added a note next to the revision history explaining why it was removed. But in a lovely example of collaborative resource creation, since then an asterisk has been added and a user uh, by the name of Double Wolf has uh, added this note explaining that because now Baum's Loop is found in so many textbooks, for clarity, it's important to understand its origin. And uh, there's a reference. And yes, sure enough, and perhaps ironically, that reference is uh, to a letter that Henrik Knipe, Dan Bell and myself published in traditional media. But unlike Wikipedia and Radiopedia, the textbooks that exist still have Baum's Loop in them. Will it be removed in the next edition? Maybe. Maybe not. But because it's now out there and those books will exist for so long, in some ways I wouldn't be surprised if Baum's Loop did just become the eponymous name for the upper bundle. And I'd be lying if I said that in some ways that doesn't make me happy because... As far as stories associated with eponymous names, this is probably one of the more interesting ones. Oh, that's such a great story, that one. Is it, is it weird, though, that every time you said Andrew, I thought you were telling me off? No, not really, because I think you're a little bit like a Labrador and you know that you are guilty by nature, even if you haven't done it. And uh, whenever you tell a Labrador off, they look guilty, even if they've been perfectly well behaved, because they know that had they been given the opportunity to do it, they would have behaved badly. And they're probably forgotten. Maybe they did do something guilty. (laughs) Um, There was that one bit where you showed Andrew Blum's face on the screen, which wouldn't have worked in the podcast. You don't think? <laughs> but, he, but he did very much look like a cheeky young medical student. And even listening to the audio version here and thinking back to when I watched the video originally, I could actually picture his face still <laughs> in oh, yeah. my mind. No, Andrew looks uh, a little bit like Zach Braff from Scrubs. So he fits the story perfectly. I should mention, which I didn't really go into it in the talk, but uh, I spoke to Andrew quite a number of times and at length about this. And clearly he has um, some complicated emotions about actually having succeeded in this. And uh, he's been very kind and uh, I think he's shown a lot of introspection and I think he's conflicted himself about his role he has played in this Uh, and we did all of this with his permission for the talk. Yeah, yeah. When I spoke a moment ago about seeing his face in my mind, even though I was just listening to an audio podcast, it reminds me of, of something that the wife of the podcast, I talk about quite a bit with her, the fact that she actually says, and she's adamant, that she cannot visualize or see anything in her mind, even in her dreams. She mm. doesn't, there's nothing visual. Do you, do you get that? So I'm extremely visual, so mm. I can hold an image in my mind yeah. 
almost as clearly as if I was looking at it. But yeah. my youngest son, the official youngest son of the podcast, <laughs> he's adamant that he has no idea what I'm talking about. Like he looks at me, he's 10, and he's yeah. like, what do you mean you can see an apple in your mind? It's like yeah. I know things about apples. I know that they are round. I know that they are red, but I can't visualize an atom. And he looks at me like I'm pulling his leg. Yeah. Like if I was able to say I can see through walls or something, because, you know, I do mess with them uh, a fair bit. So <laughs> he's like, is this yet another way that dad is? Yeah. <laughs> it just, it seems amazing to me because so much of what I think is visual in my head. And you know, if I say to you, for example, visualize an apple, the wife of the podcast wouldn't be able to visualize it, but you can visualize it. And I say, I, I can say, all right, visualize an apple. It's a red apple. It's on a table. Okay, you've probably put it in the middle of the table in your head, move it across yeah. to the side of the table. Okay, the table's probably rectangular. Make it circular table. Yeah, and you update uh, your you know. visual. Yeah, and you know, there's a fork stuck in the apple, and you can yeah. visualize all of that. And she's like, nah, I can feel what that is, but I can't yeah. I can't see can, anything at all. Can you um, not visualize whatever the olfactory version is it for smells? Because I can't do that. I imagine dogs could. Yeah, yeah. Because they're Guilty dogs. <laughs> yeah, I imagine it's kind of like your dominant sense would be the one that yeah. has the ability. So to if do you that. say to me, "Can you smell dog poop?" It's like, "No, but I know it smells bad. I know I have a bad reaction to it, but there's no way that I have any kind of um simulation of it." So that's kind of you, interesting too that we can simulate visual input. Now you've just mentioned a trigger word of mine that reminds me of an anecdote, and I will I will say that for those people listening, Potentially skip ahead, particularly if you're eating. <laughs> this isn't coprophilic, is it? <laughs> this is my banh mi story. Banh mi, like an, a Vietnamese roll. It's got like pork in it. They put this sauce on it and this pate, carrots, cucumber. Really, really nice. Okay. And one day I was being like, awesome dad. Before I went to pick up my daughter from school, I went and got a banh mi for myself and for her. And, um, and then I went home, I've got them, I'm carrying them. And then the dog looks at me like, oh, I want to come for a walk up to school to pick up the daughter as well. So I take the dog, right? So I've got the dog, I've got a barn me, one of which I'm eating, the other one I'm carrying for the daughter, walking up the hill to school, dog, you know, does a, does a poo on the ground. Um, but that's okay. I'm a, I'm a hero dad. I've even got poo bags in my pocket, right? So I get the poo bag out. I'm balancing because I've got, you know, barn me. I'm moving across to the other arm, kind of putting it underneath the elbow to try and keep it stable. I've got the poo bag. I've inverted it. My hand, I've got it. You know, it's a pretty loose stool today from the dog. Um, <clears throat> so I've got it. And there's a bin only a few meters up. So I walk up to the bin and I throw it in. Cool. Great. Right. I look down at my hand and the back of the wrist, there's this little... <laughs> There's this little bit of brown, juicy stuff, right? And and it looks just it looks just like what the dog's just done on the ground. And so I'm thinking that's that's and then I and then I think about it and I go, no, you know, I've picked up a lot of dog poo in my time and I'd never get it on my hand, right? So there's that's not it's going to be the pate. Some of the pate from the barn me must have dripped down onto my hand, right? So <laughs> So, so I decide in this moment to to give it a sniff, right? <laughs> so I give it a sniff and it smells like dog poo. It smells absolutely <laughs> like dog poo. But I can't leave it there because 
I cannot rationalize how the dog poo could have got there because, you know, I've never, it's never happened before. And I did have pate in that hand in the barn meat. So I think, no, 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 no. So I have another sniff, right? So I sniff again. And this time it smells like the pate, it smells like the barn meat. And I'm like, sweet. Okay. That's pate. <laughs> makes sense. So I lick it. <laughs> and let and me as, guess, it wasn't uh, pate. <laughs> and as soon as I lick it, it tastes just like dog poo. But I still think it's pate. It must have been. There's no way it could be dog poo. But it's amazing how if you prime your mind for it oh, to be dog absolutely. poo, it tastes like it. And then I prime my mind, no, it's got to be pate. And I smell it and it's like, yeah, it is. And then finally, finally I taste it. I swear it must be pate, but no. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of things like that, though, because you've seen the ones where um, if you hold up a word while like a written word while listening to audio with songs, for example. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. you can hear crazy lyrics in there that your mind kind of overwrites. Or imagine imagine if you opened fish that smelled like blue cheese. There's no way you would eat it, right? Yeah. And it's like that when you see, you know, that test where they write the word red, but it's written in green mm. and you need to say the colour yeah. of the word. You know, really, really tricky. Anyway, my mind got convinced that ultimately that this was dog poo, but I... I don't think you think it was pate i think it was pate but it absolutely tasted like dog poo <laughs> the anyway, fact moral that you of, know moral what of the story like. is probably don't probably don't lick it i think also like you seem to be willing to lick when there was a 50 50 chance <laughs> that it was because <laughs> that seems like too low an odds for me to potentially lick poo <laughs> you need to understand that Firstly, the pate is very tasty. And secondly, that it would have been weird walking all the way to school with this thing still on the back of my wrist. I needed to do something about it. You needed so to sort all... it out one way or the other. Did sort it out, but it uh, didn't taste good. <laughs> all right. Well, um, we haven't really spoken much about medical publishing in the outro, but I guess you did speak a lot about it in uh, Farms Loop and in the intro. So we'll, we, might, we might wrap up the episode there. Frank, how can people get in contact with us? Well, you can contact us at Reupedia on Twitter or Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylard and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. And you can email us at podcast at Reupedia.org with any ideas, feedback or poo-licking stories, if you want. Maybe we can start a petition to get Frank Gaylard to release the first chapter of his (laughs) Harry Potter knockoff book. (laughs) And if you want to help support Reupedia, then you can do so by becoming a paid supporter via the website or by purchasing an all-access pass to our online courses and our upcoming conference. And uh, in so doing, not only do you get access to all this content, but you're actually supporting us making it all available for free to everyone in low- and middle-income countries. And and what else can people do to help us, Frank? And you can also help us out by leaving a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. Five poo emojis for us. All right. (laughs) We'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. Stay rad. Stay Stay rad. rad. See you next week, mate. Bye-bye. Don't lick the poo-poo. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Just leave it on the wrist. Don't. You don't need to. Why? Why did I do it? (laughs) 